Good morning. I don't doubt that no many of us are familiar with a, it's something of a theme, I suppose, that you see in many great stories, whether you read them or watch them, whatever it may be. You've got this scenario where you have this, this master of some sort and his or her young protege, their apprentice of some kind, the relationship between the two. And at some point, it goes sideways, right? And you've got some difficulty, especially because of something that the young protege ends up doing. Um, case in point. So like uh, Harry Potter and Dumbledore or Robin and Batman or more recently Spider-Man and Iron Man or really recently Sabine and Ahsoka. Um, you know, you've got, again, the idea of this young protege and this master and the young protege, the apprentice at some point thinks, I've got this. I've got this, I've got control of this, I've got mastery to some extent, at least, or enough, uh, of, of this. Um, they become impatient, and so against the orders, against the instructor, instruction of their master, they go charging into, prematurely charging into the danger, whatever that is, and end up in trouble themselves and having to be pulled out of it. And how many times have you seen that, right? It's some kind of this theme that you see again and again in literature and film and shows and all that, all that sort of thing. Well, you know, you, that's us. Like, that's my life. That's your life. I, I am constantly, you are, we are constantly thinking ourselves to have it figured out. Yeah, master, thanks. I got this. And then go charging in, you know, guns blazing, thinking I can handle it and, and all that sort of craziness and then ending up needing to be rescued myself. And we can identify with this in many, many, at many levels, in many ways uh, in, in our own lives. And, and that's actually exactly what we see with the nation of Israel again and again and again through her people thinking, I've got this. I've got this. What do I need you for? I've got this. And then charging in and then it all just going sideways. That's the theme of the book of Judges. It's the theme of the whole of the history of, of Israel, the whole history of God's people all along, and this people right here in this room, that's our story too uh, as, as well, humbling as that is to admit. So if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Judges 21. Yes, we are in the last in our installment in this study that we've been in for the last several months. Um, this is the last chapter of the book of Judges. No, there is not a Judges 22. I looked. Uh, Judges 21 uh, is, is it. And uh, so that's where we're landing the plane here today. Um, let me just kind of back up, if I may, and give you a, a summary of what, how we got to 21, like, like historically, like the, the, the narrative, what's, what's, been, what's unfolded, how, what's setting the stage, setting the stage for what we're about, about to read. So this is something of an epilogue, chapter 17 through 21 is, is sort of this last big chunk uh, in, in the book when you break it down as far as an outline goes. Chapters 19 through 21 in particular, 19, 20, 21 in particular, are like one big unit. It's basically one big unfolding event. Now, that was way too much to try and tackle in one Sunday. So we've broken it up into, into three Sundays. But let me just back up and explain, just so, so we're all together on this before we read it, what happened in chapter 19 and then 20, and how did that set us up for chapter 21? So in 19, you've got uh, the story of this Levite, that is to say, a, a, a man from the tribe of Levi within the, the nation of Israel, this, this Levite who has a concubine. Now, right there, that should be, whoa, what, what? 
Levite, you know, that's where the priests come from. He has a concubine. Okay, so he's traveling. They're on a road trip. They're looking for a place to stay overnight. Uh, they come and settle in this little town called Gabeah, which sits in the, within the confines territorially of the tribe of Benjamin. That's a bad night, a bad, it's a very poor ratings as far as place you want to stay. Clearly, once you read through what happens in chapter 19, it's a disaster what, what transpires there. Uh, the men of the town wanting to break in, take the man, take the, it, it, I'll get into that in a little bit. Um, that's 19, the Levite Gabeah. Chapter 20. As a consequence of all of that, the whole nation of Israel, the other 11 tribes, rise up and uh, declare war on the tribe of Benjamin. And you have this, the assembly where the declaration takes place. You have the report of the battles and how they go and how in the end, Benjamin is nearly wiped out. The other tribes just are triumphant in that. And then that brings you now to chapter 21. Okay, so the dust, the dust is settling. Bodies are all over the place. Okay, the dust is settling. This is the aftermath of the battle. Pick up on two things as I read this. One, the, these oaths that are mentioned. Uh, the, the narrator is going to make reference to two oaths that were taken in the course of the battle, or maybe just before the battle. Okay, they, they're going to really play into a lot of what happens in chapter 21, these oaths. And then also, as Bo was alluding to when he began the service in the call to worship, the, um, the assessment that the narrator gives in the last verse that tells us that's the grid through which we should understand everything of the whole book of Judges, okay? All right, so here we go. Judges chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. Judges chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. Let's uh, pay heed to God's word now. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God, and they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day, the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives? And they said, What one is there of the tribes of Israel that did not come up to the Lord to Mizpah? And behold, no one had come to the camp from Jabesh-Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were mustered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of their bravest men there and commanded them, Go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead with the edge of the sword, also the women and the little ones. This is what you shall do. Every male and every woman that has lain with a male, you shall devote to destruction. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with him. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. And the whole congregation sent word to the people of Benjamin, who were at the rock of Ramon, and proclaimed peace to them. 
And Benjamin returned at that time. And they gave them the women whom they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh-Gilead, but there were not enough for them. And the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. And the elders of the congregation said, What shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? And they said, There must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe not be blotted out from Israel. Yet we cannot give them wives from our daughters. For the people of Israel had sworn, Cursed be he who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they said, Behold, there is the yearly feast of the Lord at Shiloh, which is north of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up from Bethel to Shechem, and south of Lebanon. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards, and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, and come out of the vineyards, and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh, and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle. Neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives, according to their number, from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did, was right in his own eyes. Yeah, we need to pray. Would you pray with me? Jesus, uh, this is a mess, to say the least. Um, and there are a lot of warnings in here for us. But there's encouragement, too, because we're still here. The story didn't end with Judges 21. So, Jesus, would you please help us to hear these warnings to us, but also the encouragements. We need them both. We need them both. So, please, please. And, and perhaps where we are prone only to hear the word of warning, help us hear the word of comfort. And perhaps where we are prone to only hear the word of comfort, to hear the word of warning. Um, we pray this in your name. Amen. Experience tells us that unqualified obedience can lead you into trouble. Right? Experience tells us unqualified obedience oftentimes can lead you into a world of trouble. So some of you may have seen this story, this headline, just this past week. Uh, I saw it in several different news outlets. I'll just read you a little blip here from CNN. Here's the headline. Family sues Google, alleging its Maps app led father to drive off collapsed bridge. Google has been sued by the family of a North Carolina man claiming... The company maps application last year led him to drive off a collapsed bridge and fall about 20 feet to his death, according to the lawsuit. Philip Paxson was following Google Maps directions while driving home late at night in September 2022 from his daughter's ninth birthday party. When the navigation system directed him to go over an unmarked and unbarricaded bridge that had collapsed years prior, 
the suit filed Tuesday states. Paxson drove off the unbarricaded bridge of the unbarricaded edge of the bridge in Hickory, North Carolina, and drowned, the suit says. The lawsuit claims neighbors had expressed concern that Google Maps had led drivers over the bridge, which allegedly has not been repaired since its partial collapse in 2013. So, at least some experience will tell you that unqualified obedience can lead you into a world of trouble. And this man's death is a graphic example of that. Now, you and I have a lot of reasons to be suspicious of certain sources and instructions, commands, what we're told to do. We have a lot of reasons to be suspicious because of our own experience and that of others that are informing our own, our own thoughts. And it, and it applies to about every realm of life, right? You know, it can be uh, that of, of law or medicine or academia or politics or technology, right? Be careful, be careful how much trust you put into this authority and then give them a blank check, unqualified obedience. I mean, we, we understand that that can be, you know, Philip Paxson, his um, sad example of that. Um, we, we recognize just uh, instinctively that if we're going to yield that kind of following, that's going to have to that will demand certain things of the person speaking. That's going to have to demand. It's going to, it's going to mean if, if we're going to um, unflinchingly give our trust and following to this other party, they are going to have to unfailingly demonstrate love for us, awareness, and power. Think of it like a three-legged stool. You've, you know, those three things have got to be in place for us, you know, unflinchingly, unfailingly. They're going to have to have demonstrated love, awareness, and power before we can afford to safely entrust ourselves to their care. Where are we going to find that? Is there anywhere that we can find that? Well, our text shows us be careful of where you do that, but yes, at the same time, there is. And it's the Lord himself who perfectly, perfectly provides those three, those three things for us, the love, the awareness, and the power. In fact, we could go so far as to put it this way. The Lord, the Lord loves us with a tenacious grace. Now, that, that little coupling of words I got from a, a, co a commentator this past week, I just fess up, it's not original to me, grabbed holds like an earworm, I couldn't get rid of it. Un, uh, unflinching love, tenacious grace. The Lord loves us with a tenacious grace. We then are, are to follow him. We can and are, must follow him wherever he leads. And we can because we're talking about a tenacious grace. Now, how do you see that? unflinching, unfailing love, this, this tenacious grace in the text. Two ways, very simply, two ways. One you could say negatively, one you could say positively. One you could say mostly in the text, and one it requires more of a macro view of how the text fits into the overall whole. But here are the two ways. First, 
in, in the unfolding mess that we see here in Judges 21, we see his tenacious grace and also in his unfolding plans. So the unfolding mess we see and also his unfolding plans. So let's look at these, two, these things in turn. So remember uh, the, 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 the lens, the grid through which we need to understand all that's taking place here. It was in Judges 17, 6. I kept mentioning that again and again last week. That was the first of the two bookends. Now we've got Judges 21, 25. In those days, it's the exact same verbiage. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And everything that we've read here is certainly indicative of that. So you have uh, the assertion what we said last week, the assertion, there was no king. Factual statement, there was no king. Analysis, boy, they needed one. Boy, we need one. Boy, we need one. So the immediate events, let me just give you a quick summary of what we're seeing here in chapter 21. Uh, the immediate events of chapter 21, uh, the, how did they perceive the problems that were before them? How did they assess that? How did they perceive what was, was happening? Um, all right, so the tribe of Benjamin is recognized after this, this, these series of battles to be on the verge of extinction. It, it's really nothing but, but burning piles of ref, ref, uh, what am I, uh, refuse. Um, there's really nothing left. The, the population nearly, nearly completely decimated. All that's left is 600 freedom fighters who have gone off to the Rock of Ramon up, up in the north. That's all that's left. Complicated in terms of can there be, is there any hope for this tribe, its future? Complicated by the fact that, as I said, you know, one of the, the vows was the rest of the tribe said, oh no, we're, we're not letting you, we're not intermarrying with you. So it seems as though, okay, that's a cap. <laughs> you know, that, that, that's, that's it. You know, there's, there, there, there's an expiration date here coming pretty quickly on this, on this tribe. So that's how they perceive their problem. This is the tribe and it's, it's, it's nearly extinct and it seems to have no hope. Oh, but then they have these solutions. They have these brilliant solutions. We'll give them creativity. We'll give them a mark for that. Um, so they're, what they're gonna do is they're gonna fix the wife vow with the war vow. Okay, so by, by that, what I mean is they're going to get around this vow they've taken to the Lord. We're not going to allow any of our children to intermarry with them. But, but that said, we took this other vow, and in the course of the battle, just before it started, we said, okay, if anybody fails to show up, any of the tribes of Israel, any towns within Israel fail to show up, then anathema to them, if you fail to be with us, you therein are against us, and we will take you out. Jabesh Gilead, this little town on the other side of the Jordan River, still part of Israel, but away from the battle. They didn't show. So what do they do? They send a legion of sorts in there, take them out, destroy the, utterly decimate them, except for six, sorry, sorry, 400, 400 young women. You can only, I can only imagine how they went about the process of determining who was a virgin and who wasn't, who to take back and who, don't, don't go there, but they had two of, right? Utterly humiliating and the trauma that no doubt is, is taking place here as the scene is unfolding. They take those 400 women back to, the, to Benjamin. Oh, but wait, we have a problem. The math isn't adding up. There were 600. We need 200 more if you're keeping track. Oh, but not to worry. 
there's a festival, a festival of the Lord, likely the festival of the tabernacles, which takes place right around this time of the year, by the way, September, October. That's when this is all happening. Um, not a problem. There's this festival up in Shiloh. Just lie in ambush and take the first 200 of the girls that you see and take them also as your wives. And then, okay, great. Solution, problem solved. Again, think with me of the horror of all this, the insanity of all this, the generational trauma that this will have inflicted into so many different lives. The consequences of this ridiculous solution. Tim Keller, in his commentary on this passage, puts it this way. An assembly which had gathered to do justice for a single raped and murdered woman. Now that's chapter 19. An assembly which had gathered to do justice for a single raped and murdered woman ends up planning and promoting the murder of a whole town and the abduction and rape of the girls of two Israelite towns. You see where this got them. Okay, that's the immediate events. The larger picture, though, how does this fit into the larger picture? Well, it fits brilliantly, well, fits, I guess, into the epilogue as a whole. This is consistent with the pattern. What you see in 21 fits perfectly with the pattern that we've seen in 19 and 20, where you have this host, and by that I mean a, per a person with a home, and host in the ancient Near East, you know, the laws of hospitality, the traditions of all that. He takes uh, a man and his second wife, a concubine, into his home, offering him the protection of the home, but oh, oh, wait, also offering his daughter and the man's wife for, for protection in, in the home. So, you, okay, that, great. And then you've got the Levite, the, the man with the second wife, the concubine, who to protect his own skin sends her on out there. And then in the assembly that he calls, he lies about his, his, his role in all of this, lest guilt be imputed to him then the tribe of Benjamin refuses to engage with what would have been justice and instead pursues a path of utter injustice. And then the whole nation of Israel, they're the ones that concoct this scheme in chapter 21. I mean, you see how this fits. It fits a pattern. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Well, the tragedy is that actually fits the whole pattern of the whole book of Judges. And that fits the, peck, the, the pattern of every see in the, everything we see in the history of Israel, of God's engagement with his, his people. Uh, in, in fact, just keep your thumb there in, uh, in Judges. I'm going go to go to the book of Acts, Acts 7. This is in the midst of, a, of an address that a man named Stephen gives. And uh, chapter 7 of Acts is the record of his address, and he's recounting, the, basically it's really brilliant, through this history of God's people. It's like this Old Testament seminar that, that uh, Stephen is giving at this point. And then he gets to the very end, chapter 7, verses um, 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then as a consequence of 
him speaking the truth as he did, they then killed the man. The Lord is showing his tenacious grace in hanging with his people through this unfolding mess. The fact that I was saying it earlier, that the story doesn't stop with, with judges. But wait, there's more. The fact that there's yet more is testimony to the Lord's tenacious grace. And the fact that we are very much like these people is a personal, you know, existential, individual testimonies, right? Every single person in this room is a story testifying to his tenacious grace because of the extent to which we are like them. They are like us. This is us. This is our family we're reading of here in Judges 21. That, that he would, would, would hang with us, love us, show us such mercy and grace despite everything that he knows about us is stunning. It's it, it said sometimes that the, the, you can divide the world into basically two different groups of people. Those who will run to the fire or run from the fire and those who will run to the fire. Right? I mean, as I know, there's a lot of other ways you can divide the world, but that's one of the, the, those sayings, right? Those who, uh, you can divide the world into two groups of people, those who will run from the fire and those who will run to the fire. Well, here's the thing. The Lord is always running to the fire. He's running to us. Knowing what it will cost, knowing what it will demand to redeem us, to renew us, to rescue us. With full knowledge, he is running towards us. So, so this is the grounding message of, of partly of, of Judges 21. Christian, you are chosen, but you are not choice. You are picked, but you are not the pick of the litter. None of us are. It was, it, it was not because of what he saw in you, that he saved you. It was despite it. It was not because, it was despite. Now, two huge implications there. That's in incredibly humbling because truly we have nothing to boast about. Leveling the playing field for all of us before the foot of the cross. So, humbling and assuring. And humbling and assuring. Because you know the grounds of his favor, the grounds of his grace were never in you. They were never in you. So you can't undo it. It can't be undone. It's always been in him. His is a love that cannot let you go. Do you, do you see it? It's astonishingly humbling and astonishingly assuring at the same time. That's what we see here with this unfolding mess. In that sense, the Lord's tenacious grace. Also, his unfolding plan. And here, too, we have great grounds for, for trust. His unfolding plan, and again, this is the big macro level, you know, looking at Judges 21 and how it fits in the whole of the epilogue, how it fits in the whole story, how it fits in the whole of the history of God's people. What, what, what do we see here? We're just thinking in terms of the book of Judges itself and, and, and the epilogue too. Um, the bigger problem is what we're again seeing, and Will and I, we've been 
talking about this over the last several months, as you see reflected here in, in the book. It's, it's never what they thought it was. The bigger, deeper problem was never what the people thought it was. It was never really the invaders. It was never really, the bigger, deeper problem was never really the invaders or the oppressors. They were a symptom. They were a symptom of things spiritually that had gone awry. And in a way, you could actually say that those invaders, those oppressors were also not just a symptom, but the Lord's severe mercy, like smelling salts sent to his people to wake them up, to jar them, to help them to see how they were, they were drifting right into the, into the rocks. And you see that especially here in the last several chapters because, you know, there are no invaders. There are no oppressors in the last several chapters of the book of Judges. It's just the Israelites. They're just fighting among themselves, literally killing themselves. Their worst enemy, our worst enemy, really, you could say, in many respects, is us. Now, that's not to dismiss what needs to be said about the, the world and the devil, so don't mishear me there, but we also have to look at the flesh ourselves, how we are part of that in terms of our own worst enemy. Bigger problem, deeper problem, needing therein, right, right? Say with me, a bigger, deeper solution. A bigger, deeper problem is gonna demand a bigger, deeper solution. It's not gonna come through another judge, right? And, and any marginal successes that any of the judges had are just pointing to the greater success that is needed. And all of the multitude of the failures points to that that's not gonna do it. Another human being or we ourselves can't do it. Not Deborah, as great as she was. Not Samson, as crazy as he was. Right? It was going to demand someone else, not another judge. At best, all that was incomplete and temporary. It's worth looking even at a map. We never, I don't think Will and I ever talked about this, but it's interesting to look at a map where, okay, these, this judge was basically over here and over here and over here and over here. And there's actually, when you look at it, some time overlaps, likely, and yet, how did it work? Like, oh, we got one, two, or three going at the same time in some cases in different regions. How well did it go? Not well at all. Pointing to the need for another, for someone else, a king. A king, spoken of again and again, the, the refrain here. One who will deliver and defend. One who will save and secure. One who will protect and provide. Someone else to come to rescue, to deliver. And not just a king, because if you keep reading, you know that, mm, how well did that go? But the king, the king, the king that we've, they, that we look back and worship now, they were looking forward to and worshiping, at least in some degree, even then. So Psalm 96, let me just hit you with a couple of passages that, that make this so clear as to who this was that, that, we, they, that they, that we really need. Psalm 96, verses 11 through 13. Let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field result and everything in it. They shall, then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Why? Why are the ants singing? 
before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. It's usually a Christmas text, um, but it's a whole year long text. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and following. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and in his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, right? Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Okay, does it happen? Has it happened? Who is this? Oh, glad you asked. Luke chapter 1. This is definitely a Christmas text. Luke chapter 1. The angel Gabriel comes to this young girl. We know her as Mary and says, among other things, these words to her about this child. Luke 1 verse 32. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Folks, it's not just the unfolding mess that testifies to the Lord's tenacious grace, but also the unfolding plan. The unfolding plan. Yeah. I think I've said this in a different context before, so bear with me if, you, if I'm getting repetitive. Um, the trouble taken is proportionate to the affection felt. The trouble taken is proportionate to the affection felt. So I remember years ago, my parents were visiting, and my mom was just, what, stunned, shocked, surprised, all that, as she was looking at all the work that Sarah had done, preparing this meal and the table setting and knowing that she's kind of a busy girl, got a little bit going on, and, and yet, you know, we're talking like four-star hotel quality going on What's going in, the, in the dining room, and my mother says, I think to Sarah, at least to, to the group of us, you've gone to such trouble. Now, she did not say that as a criticism. She said that out of a spirit of appreciation. The trouble taken is proportional to the love felt. My mom was feeling loved in that moment. We've got centuries of trouble taken. For, for you, this morning, you, followers of Jesus, do you know right now the centuries of trouble God has taken for you? For us, for you, the lengths to which he has gone. Centuries. You know, beginning with a promise in the garden, the Garden of Eden, and unfolding over the, the, the eras, the, the, the millennia, to Jesus and what he's praying over, preparing for in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you see the trouble that he has taken for you? The lengths to which he has gone. Please, I say this for of myself, to myself. May we all join in this. May no, whatever it is that's troubling you now, 
in whatever form that may take, last week and in this upcoming week, whatever is troubling your heart now, let that be eclipsed, overshadowed with, brought into, into perspective with the trouble he has taken for you. You are not abandoned. You are not cut off. See the tenacious grace, his love stretched out for you. That's a love that we can trust. It's a love that we can follow, which then brings us to the table. Um, and some questions that perhaps we should ask about this, this love. Okay, if this love is so tenacious, this grace is, is so unrelenting, and, and we cannot, he will not let us go, no matter what. Is that not a love that is subject to abuse? If he's going to love me no matter what, then, then I guess it doesn't matter what, what I do, how I, I, I live. Are, are you saying in essence that, that okay, yeah, we're obligated, we're obligated to obey him and to heed him and to listen to him despite the love? No, not despite, but because. The obligation comes because of the love that he has already, already showered down upon us. And proven again and again and again. His love is not an excuse to do as we please. It's the reason to do as he pleases. That's the love that we see here presented before us in these signs and seals. How much more? This is the body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. This, the signs, the seals, that's what's being represented to us here. That's what by the Spirit, He promises to, to press into our hearts with assurance. Having lived the life that we should have lived but didn't and don't. And died the death that we deserve to die and really couldn't. That's what we have here before us, presented before us. And such is the extent of his love that he wants us to know that love. That he would call us to observe, celebrate this sacrament regularly. Such is his love. He wants you to know that you are loved. And we see that here with these signs and seals.